Good morning. Welcome to the Lord's house. I want to welcome also, uh, we have over 100 people who are watching online every weekend, so we welcome them also to this time as we reflect on this theme of the great wait, times in which we are waiting for God to reveal himself in our life. In a moment, we're going to take a look at Psalm 13. But before I begin that, I, I just want to, uh, a couple of uh, other things uh, that are on my mind. First of all, this, this idea that we can help some kids that live in the city who are part of impoverished homes is a powerful thing. Now, you might think as Christian staff people, you know, we're involved in all that. Uh, sometimes the danger of being on staff and being a Christian pastor is... Uh, you can excuse yourself because you just say, hey, I told the people, and if the people do it, that's fine. You don't always get involved personally in everything that happens. And, and uh, you know, I try to fight against that. And, and in fact, we were out uh, the other day on my day off, and, and uh, I had told Carol that, you know, uh, we are being overwhelmed by people who have needs, and uh, maybe we should write a check or, or pick up a gift card and and, and give it to Jen Dotson so that she could go out and buy some more gifts than, than, than what they have because at that time they, were, they only had 60 gifts in and, and we thought we'd have 200 people there. Now it's risen to over 300 people there and we have 100 gifts. And, and Carol says, I, 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 don't think that's, I don't think that's right. I, I, I think we should do that ourselves. Can you imagine if they have to go out and buy all those gifts? And I said, oh, she won't mind. But so we had some time and we stopped and we went through the toy aisles and we just loaded up our cart with, uh, with gifts. And uh, it was kind of fun the next day to bring bags of gifts into Jen's uh, cubicle and drop them off there and just encourage her in her work. So I, just please do that. You know, th there's a scripture in James that says, what good is it if you say to those who have need, hey, you know, I care about you. <laughs> Go be well fed, stay warm, God bless and you do nothing to help them. There's power, especially for peripheral people who have this notion about West County and who have this notion about Christians, uh, that they talk the talk and they don't walk the walk. And, and uh, the best way that we can reach them is by acts of compassion and kindness. So uh, it's okay, I don't want to discourage you from writing a check or, or giving a gift card, but you know, in whatever way you can, if you could help us reach that goal, it will make a difference to a lot of kids and to a lot of homes uh, in the city. And we are having an impact there. It's actually making news, uh, the impact that is going on in College Hill. And you have been on the ground floor of that work. And uh, other people have joined with us now. Other Christian groups have joined with us. And, and it's starting to make a change in a very desperate neighborhood. So thank you for that. Secondly, uh, I was traveling last week. Uh, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. Uh, because we went to Indiana for my mom's memorial service. My mom uh, passed away, and, and uh, that was both good and sad, uh, wonderful in some ways. And, and, and then we were out of town, and so I was coming back, and I was listening to the service on the iPad in my car. What amazing technology, you know, that uh, you could go from cell tower to cell tower with your iPad and, and actually watch the worship service. I was not watching. I was only listening because I was driving. Although I did know that Dion wore a, a vest with a hoodie. I did hear that. Uh, <laughs> my wife mentioned that to me. Dion, wherever you are. Uh, so she always describes his garments to me. Uh, <clears throat> but it was a powerful message about, about Joseph who had to wait in prison. I mean, here's a godly man. And yet he wasn't ready to do what God wanted him to do. And so God forced him to wait in prison. And, and only later did, did Joseph 
and the world realized what was taking place as he was put in more and more important positions in the prison until he was pretty much running the prison and then began to run the country. And so God was using that imprisonment to reshape his character. Great message. Man, do we have a great preacher in Dion? Amen. You know, we do. For another preacher to remember what somebody else said besides what I said, that's pretty amazing. So, uh, and, and the reason I tell you that story is because somebody was in the audience that day who has a niece who is about to go to prison. And she's been in prayer for this niece. This niece was raised in a very dysfunctional home. Her mom was out of her life very early. Her dad himself was incarcerated for most of her life. And, uh, and, and this lady assumed almost a parental responsibility for this child. And nevertheless, her influence was not enough to keep this kid out of trouble. So this kid began to use drugs. And then in order to support her habit of using drugs, yes, right here in West County, began to sell drugs, sold drugs to a teenager who overdosed and died. She was arrested for possession, for distribution, and for manslaughter and was just sentenced to 30 years. She's 23 years old. She could be your daughter. She could be your granddaughter. And uh, so this aunt has this passion for this kid, you know, who is off the rails. And uh, she heard Dion's sermon about how God can use prison to turn somebody's life around. And so she again, you know, prayed and, and then engaged her niece and said, you need Jesus in your life, man. Nobody can change this situation except Christ. And, and so on Tuesday, that 23-year-old with her 5-year-old daughter made an appointment, came in, sat down with me, walked through the Bible, and was baptized here. Because God is changing lives in this place. Not only that, her dad, who I'm pretty sure hadn't been in church in years, who had just got out of prison recently, was here as well. And, and so were some other uh, uh, people that didn't look like church-going types. And, and uh, it, was, it was just like, I just felt so honored to represent you. And, and that girl went to prison the next day. Now, we have a relationship established that will continue to... Uh, strengthen and, and I know her aunt will as well but you know it has not, not a lot to do with my message but it has a lot to do with last week's message and, and the difference this church is making in the lives of some uh, I, I know that we don't always do everything that pleases you you know we, we push you and we're edgy uh, but there's a reason for that because it's on the edges where lost people live and that's why we exist so just enough said let's pray may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all the assembled hearts prove acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We're talking today about uh, waiting when it's not always about you. You know, we assume that everything's about us. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that happened to me last week is when we went home uh, for my mom's uh, memorial service, I, I had opportunity to be with my brothers and sisters. I have three older brothers and sisters and three younger brothers and sisters. And, and so I have my perspective on our family but my older brothers and sisters think that I don't know everything there is to know, just like I think my younger brothers and sisters were spoiled, so they think that about me. And uh, they have a history that I don't have and an understanding I don't have, and they have 
a knowledge of my parents uh, when they were years younger than when I entered into the world and became, uh, you know, uh, able to understand a little bit about family dynamics. And so it's always fun to be with my older brothers and sisters especially. And uh, they brought out a box that they were going to lay in mom's uh, casket before she was buried. And in that box were letters. And uh, I said, you're going to do what with those letters? We're going to bury those with mom. I said, what are those letters? And they said, well, those are letters that passed between mom and dad uh, way back as far as uh, 1942. Mom was born in 1926, so she was like 16 years old. And, and these aren't even letters that had stamps on them. These were things that she wrote when she was on lunch hour at high school. I don't know how they maintained, you know. She had to give them to dad. Dad had to somehow keep them. And then there was this thing called World War II that intervened. Dad was two years older than mom, and, and I read these letters to Carol yesterday, and she said, I'm not sure you should be reading those. <laughs> I said, I don't think mom would mind, you know. Uh, uh, and so they're the, they're the writings of a 16-year-old and 17-year-old girl who was in love with a guy that I think she met when she was ending her sophomore year. He was ending his senior year. And then as soon as he graduated, of course, he was drafted. And, and so a lot of these letters were written by a young guy, 18, 19 years old, who was at basic in Illinois, about to be shipped off to the Pacific, would not see her for four years. And uh, mom writes in some of the letters that she thinks they should be married uh, before he goes to war. And let's just pretend that the war doesn't go on. She, mom is busy uh, helping with the rationing program. I guess high schools were involved in that, and they were training kids to handle that as well. And so it's just an interesting picture into history. Uh, and, and dad doesn't think it's wise in the letters that they would get married yet because he's about to go to war and he was probably getting counsel like that also, you know, about how to handle relationships before you go to war. Uh, I also learned that he was at Iwo Jima. 22,000 soldiers died at Iwo Jima. You know, he, I, I think probably out of compassion, he didn't want to leave a young girl to be a widow. Uh, and mom was raised in a German Lutheran family anyway, and I think the chances of her getting permission to be married at 16 or 17 were probably next to zero. Uh, uh, but, uh, but she says, I would wait for you if, if we were married. I'll wait, I'll wait through anything. Just, you know, we should do that. And dad says, no, I don't think that's a good idea. See, there's a personal story here, but it wasn't about them. They were swept up in something bigger than they were. They weren't married until the summer of 1946, four years. You know, they communicated in letters. Now, I just have a few. Uh, they did pull them all out. They didn't put any with mom. And so I'm going to write for more. Uh, it was fascinating to read. And, and, and in a way, that's what I'm talking about today, that you may be swept up in something that's bigger than you, but you always assume it's a personal matter. I think David dealt with Goliath because that was the issue at hand. You know, why doesn't somebody do something about this guy? What are you guys all standing here for? I'll go fight him. And, and then David became uh, a general in the, in the army of Israel against the Philistines, and it was all about the battle. And then it was all about he was anointed king. It was all about him ruling his kingdom. And, and yet at the end of David's life, David realized that not even those historic and significant moments were the thing. The thing was that he was used to reveal God to other people. And I would say that about you too, that your situation in life is not necessarily the thing. It's not all about you. It's not all about this moment in your life. In your moments of life, whether they are good times or whether they are bad times, you are a reflection of God in life so that others might observe. This is what David said in reflection at the end of his life as an old man. 
from uh, actually 2 Samuel chapter 23 at the very end of his life. I'm reading now. These are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse. I think that's kind of cool. You know, he was king. He was a great general. And what does he call himself? Jesse's kid. And I think that's where we all are. You know, I think about that, you know, despite of a pastor, despite of things I've achieved. You know, I'm, I'm finally Vaughn and Myra's son. David, just the son of Jesse, declares. In fact, the man who was raised up on high declares. You know, he could have chosen any shepherd. David is not naive to believe that he brought anything to the table. You know, David, the one that God raised up, declares. The one anointed by the God of Jacob declares. The sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel, the rock of Israel spoke through me. He says nothing about his victories. He says nothing about his wealth. He says nothing about making Israel the center of the universe in his lifetime. The one who is privileged to be used by God has a word to say to you. And that's how he describes it. I I think it's really powerful. I, I love the Psalms of David because in the Psalms of David, we see not just the narrative, not just the history. We see uh, the understanding of, of how God works through circumstance and, and how God works through people to accomplish his purpose. And, and David was not just a, a king and not just a warrior. He was also a poet who wrote songs. And, and so in Psalm 13, we get an understanding of how David, a godly man, felt while he was forced to wait. So I want to read it with you now as, as we get to that. Um, David said in his prayer, How long, Lord? How long? Will you forget me forever? Why aren't you paying attention, God? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I turn this over in my head? Day after day. I have this overwhelming despair, this sorrow in my heart. How long will you allow my enemy to triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Enlighten me. Help me understand what you're doing. (laughs) Or I'm going to die. And my enemy will say, see, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Explain to me again, God, how that would be beneficial to you. And then he takes this twist at the conclusion of this psalm of despair. He says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And I will again sing the praise of the Lord, for he has been good to me. Wow. You know, I, you, sh- you should remember Lucky 13. Just remember, you know, it's, not, it's an unlucky number in our culture. And, and uh, that psalm is about people who are feeling unfortunate who are feeling uh, despair over confusion of God in their life. Uh, I, I had a picture here. I, I skipped over it and threw the guys upstairs off. But the picture of Michelangelo, uh, who, who uh, in the Sistine Chapel, has this vision of uh, God creating Adam. And it's the very center of the, of the Sistine Chapel. I was fortunate to be there uh, about a year ago. And this is the very center of the ceiling in this famous chapel that's full of masterpieces. Everywhere you look, you could spend days in there examining art. And this is the creation of Adam as God is reaching out to touch Adam and give him life, as David envisioned it in his painting. 
uh, as Michelangelo envisioned it in his painting. And, and I think that that's a pretty de good description of what we expect, that it's all about us, that we're reaching out to God as God reaching out to us. And what is God doing? And, and God, could you engage me uh, in this present struggle that I'm in? And could you help me in some way? And, and for me, the prayer has always been, when I'm confused by the nature of God, Lord, you know, you know, when the, when, the, when the issue is so complex and other people are involved and other relationships are involved and, and the church is involved or, you know, uh, my behavior affects other people's attitudes and, and, and I just think it's not so easy. People think it's easy. They think they know uh, what I should do and I'm confused by what I should do and I just pray, Lord, you know, Lord, you know, Lord, you know. For David, the prayer was, was like that. He just said, how long, O Lord, how long? How long? Come on. Give me some insight. Give me some direction. Give me some prompting. And I think it's a universal feeling that, that most of us can experience and have experienced often in life. I wondered, what was the context of this psalm? You know, as David prayed this prayer, this anguished prayer to God, because under most of the headings of the psalm, we have a historic uh, introduction. We have a historic uh, note that has been placed there by ancient editors of David's work, and it will say, a psalm of David while he was fleeing from Saul, or a psalm of David when he was in hunger, or a psalm of David, you know, uh, when Absalom was, was reigning in Jerusalem, and it gives us some insight. And so I wondered, when was this psalm written? When did David feel this way, so abandoned by God and so confused by his inattentiveness? And I thought, maybe it was the fact that David was anointed to be king of Israel when he was just a boy. Remember? Saul had become hardened of heart and was no longer uh, attentive to Samuel's direction, the prophet, no longer attentive to God's uh, direction and blessing of him to make him king. Saul became arrogant, began to build statues of himself around the country, and God finally rejected Saul and said, Samuel, I'm going to send you down to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was just a dot on a map. We wouldn't even know it except that Samuel was sent to Bethlehem to choose the next king. And he said, he will be of the house of Jesse. So Samuel comes down to this dusty little village that we wouldn't know except for this trip. He comes down to this dusty little village and he's been told that Jesse, uh, this shepherd man who has these sons, uh, one of his sons I'm going to choose as the next king. And so Jesse brings all of his boys by. Some of them are in the army. Some of them are strong and tall and, and powerful. And, just, and Samuel thinks, oh, it's got to be this guy. It's got to be this guy. God says, no, not him. No, not him. Until they're all all past him. And Samuel's confused, and he says, Jesse, these can't be all your boys. He says, yeah, this is pretty much it. He says, there's the kid, you know. He's, he's out with the sheep. And Samuel all of a sudden says, the kid, bring the kid. We won't sit down and eat until the kid comes. And so David comes in his shepherd garb. He's not fit to meet a prophet. And, uh, and Samuel immediately knows this is the man that God has chosen. Do you know how long it was from the time that he anointed David as a shepherd boy off the field that day until it was fulfilled that David became king? 25 years. Now, in between, uh, David was often pursued by Saul. Saul tried to kill him. Uh, David had to hide out. He was an outlaw. And, and I have this vision because I like to think of these people as real. They were real. And I like to give them human quality. And I like to think about them sitting around a campfire, as, as outlaws do, and uh, drinking wine uh, because that was the alcohol of choice. Uh, and, and saying, hey, David, hey, David, come, on, come over here. 
David, tell us again about that day that Samuel came down to your daddy's house and said you were going to be king. I love that one. Tell us that one again. That's so funny. And what are you doing now? You're hiding out. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. How old do you think Samuel was then? Do you think he was still in his right mind when he did that? You know, do you really believe that? Can you imagine 25 years of that? David must have doubted. Certainly those around him doubted. Was it then that he wrote, how long, O Lord, how long? You know, what's going on? I don't get it. You said I was going to be king. I'm not king. I'm an outlaw. I'm worse. I'm not even recognized. I'm not even allowed to go to the temple to worship. Or maybe it was when he was hiding in the cave of Adullam, you know, with all of these outlaws and renegades, saying, what in the world? Maybe it was the time that it appeared as though God had put Saul in his hands. There were two times when David could have killed Saul, and instead he stuck a spear right next to him as he slept, or he cut off a piece of his robe. And then as Saul moved away, he said, hey, Saul, check out your robe. Hey, Saul, did you notice the spear by your bed? I could have killed you tonight, but I didn't. What is it then? That he said, oh, Lord, how long? Oh, Lord, how long? You know, what is going on? What should I do in my life? Was it when uh, his son lay dying and David was in prayer for his son for seven days because David had committed adultery and in order to cover up his adultery, he had been complicit in the murder of of that woman's husband, Uriah. And uh, his son had been struck with an illness that led to death. Was it then that David said, Lord, what's going on? You know, Lord, how long, oh Lord, how long? Why must I have this sorrow overwhelm me in my life? Was it, was it then? Or was it uh, when he had to flee Jerusalem because his own son Absalom was involved in treason and rose up and, and stole the leadership of Jerusalem from David and David fled the city rather than destroy the city rather than kill his own son? Eventually, one of David's generals would kill his son in order to defend David's honor and integrity and restore David to the throne. But it was then, maybe, when he said, how long, O Lord, how long? We don't know. And and I I think it's intentional that God doesn't tell us because there must have been a thousand times in David's life when he wondered, what's God doing? How many times in your life have you wondered what God is doing? There must be hundreds of times. You're probably in a moment like that now. Even if you know what God is doing in some parts of your life, there must be some significant thing in your life that you're saying, Lord, how long? What in the world is going on? I I think about this posture of, of this famous statue as we think there and try to understand what is God doing? It's not knowing that drives us crazy, isn't it? I mean, if we knew what the medical diagnosis was, you know, if we knew the outcome of the job interview, but they don't call us back and we don't want to seem too eager, so we don't call them. If we knew how this financial crisis would turn out, you know, we could deal with that. But mostly we are in a situation where we don't know the outcome of a situation that causes us to struggle. We're left with our own thoughts. We're left, you know, inside our own head. And we're confused because we simply don't know. In this psalm, David was feeling raw emotion. He felt forgotten by God. How long, O Lord, how long? Over here, God, I'm over here. You know, I'm the God you sent Samuel down to anoint. He was feeling all alone. How long must I turn these things over in my own mind? You know, it wears me out. I'm exhausted, not from physical exertion, but from confusion. And David was feeling a lot of self-pity. You know, if you've ever been there and and you hate yourself when you feel that, David must have had those same emotions because he said, how long must I be consigned 
to feel this sorrow, this despair, this depression. You know, I know this is not a godly attitude, and yet I cannot deny this is how I feel at the moment. He was feeling defeated. How long will my enemy be allowed to exalt over me? And what good does it do, Lord? How are you blessed when my enemy mocks me and says, this is how God treats his children? Look at David. How does that bless you, God? How does that serve any good purpose? How does my death, how does my defeat serve you? You know, he was just throwing it all out there. It's tough when we don't know. It's tough to wait. And yet waiting is essential for the development of faith. It's just absolutely essential. I don't know if you've ever had a, a, a leg or an arm uh, or a wrist or a hand in a cast and how difficult it is when you uh, have the cast removed and, and your muscles have atrophied and your ligaments have, have shortened and, and how you have to work that thing back into you know, uh, usefulness because of the atrophy of not being used. So it is with faith. Faith that is not used, faith that is not exercised becomes flabby, becomes weak, becomes ineffectual. And so God who would like to enter into your life restrains from action in your life so that you might demonstrate faith and by the exercise of faith might grow to trust him more when you don't know what it is he is doing. This is how the Bible actually defines faith. It says in Hebrews, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and it's conviction about things you can't see that's the very definition of faith is believing in god because of what god has done for you even though you don't know what he's doing at the moment but because of his historic concern for you and because of the sacrifice of christ for you i still believe that somehow he is with me through this even though this moment is confusing and upsetting me and despairing in my life In fact, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, hope that is seen is not hope by definition. We hope for what we do not see, and with perseverance, we wait for it. The fact that you're in a struggle does not mean that God doesn't care. It may mean that you are swept up in something greater than yourself that that God is doing and maybe using you to accomplish something greater, like my folks. It was very personal for them. You know, that their life had to be put on hold, but they were caught up in something much greater that they at the moment could not even foresee or perhaps even understand. So it is with us. It's not always about us, although we believe that it is. The truth is the mat- of the matter is that perception does not always equal reality. Our mind plays tricks on us. We are always about the immediate. God is always interested in the long term. It is always personal for us, and for God it's always the mission but we always think it's about us. We, we began our service today with, with kind of a fun Carly Simon song about you're so vain. I'll bet you think this song is about you, and it's about this arrogant guy who walks into a room and, uh, and everyone pays attention, and, and she's so tired of that, and she at one time was under his control, and, and so she writes this song, which, by the way, was about him. <laughs> it's kind of interesting, ironic. Uh, and, and that's one face of of vanity the other face of vanity is carly simon sitting in a corner being upset and frustrated because you know it's also about her so it's also that person who mourns a situation that is all caught up in wondering why this is happening to them not only those who are the center of the spotlight but those who are outside the spotlight altogether why has god for some reason chosen to slight me and honor somebody else 
it confuses us. There are lessons to be learned in David's words, and let me just uh, outline them quickly. First of all, honesty is the best policy. David was raw. You know, he's shaking a fist at God. And when I think about this, David is honored throughout the Scripture as one of the greatest kings, in fact, the greatest king of all of Israel. All the other kings, even his own son, are compared to him. He was likened to his father David, or he was not likened to his father David. They say that even about his great-grandsons who became king. Everybody's compared to David, and David was by all means uh, not a perfect person. But David was honest before God, and there's power in that. Don't you hate it? When you have a child in your home or a spouse in your home and you know they're upset and you say to them, what's up with you? And they say, nothing. You wouldn't understand. Never mind. I don't want to talk about it. You know, how is, you feel slighted, don't you? Like, why are you shutting me out? You know, if, if I'm to have this relationship with you, you have to share the hard times as well as the good times. And isn't it true of God, too? Do you, do you just say, never mind, God. You wouldn't understand, God. You know, David was honest to God. I am upset with you, God. You are taking me off. And I want to have a word with you. And then God says, good for you, David. Let me have it. Bring it. Go ahead and make your case. I think about uh, people who, who, who have that moment, and, and after they have that moment, they feel better. I, I compare it, you know, to kids who throw up. They always feel better when they throw up, you know. If you have a lot of emotional baggage uh, towards God, it's okay that you throw up to God a little bit, you know. He can clean it up, you know. It's, it doesn't bother him that you just have this, this need to just lay it out, you know. God, I'm upset with you, and let me, I'm going to have my moment. I'm going to have my say, and I want you to listen. And that's what David does, and God honors that. But then David also shifted, and, and he begins to say at the end, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. I have in the past, and, and I don't know when this happens, but David had seen God save him before. Jonathan had told him that his father Saul was planning to kill him, and, and God through that means intervened. God provided David for food. God provided David with water. God provided for David in the past, and so David let his past inform his present. And not only that, we have not only David's history, we have the history of the Bible. And the scripture says, these things happen to these people so that you might learn from them. So that you might have this experience to learn vicariously through the history of other people. So let your personal past and let the historic past of God's interaction with the world inform you about your present. It's not always about you, Lord. I I know this is confusing me now, but you've helped me in the past, and I believe that somehow you're going to help me in the future as well. And I know historically uh, you have not deserted your people, even though at times David felt deserted, yet you circled around and you restored him to the throne and you blessed him, even though he was confused at the moment. And then finally, default to grace. Default to grace. You know that if God did not spare his own son, Jesus Christ, but he gave him up to die for you, then in these lesser things that are pretty important at the moment, but they're lesser compared to your eternity, either with God or without God, in heaven or in hell, compared to that, they are lesser, despite how prominent they are, default to his grace. And say, if God did that for me, then how can I possibly question what he's doing now, even though I'm confused by it? When David finished his psalm, his problem was not resolved. 
but in a sense, his problem was solved. Nothing had changed. It was, it was just a moment's prayer. But David's heart was changed. David felt differently about his circumstance. And as a result, I think he left his knees that day, you know, uh, optimistic and positive about what God would do. He concludes the psalm in a very upbeat way, although he's shaking his fist at God. And yet I know I have trusted in your loving kindness in the past. I know my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. That's the way you do things. And I will sing again because you have dealt bountifully with me. And just a moment later in the service, we're going to pray the serenity prayer. It, it's pretty famous. You see it on the bumper stickers uh, of people across the community. You know, Lord, grant me uh, the ability to change the things I can, to accept the things I cannot change, and the courage to know the difference. That's all that you get on the bumper sticker. Uh, but there's more to the prayer than that. And I love what it says further on in the prayer. Living one day at a time, accepting hardship as the pathway to peace, taking as Jesus did the sinful world as it is, not as I wish it were, trusting that the Lord, you know, who loves me, who died for me, who has all power in heaven and on earth, trusting that the Lord will make all things right if I just surrender to his will, if I trust him. And uh, I'm going to ask you to pray that prayer in a minute as kind of a personal commitment to uh, the great weight that you're enduring when God is confusing you in life. Let's pray now. Lord, thank you for the example of David who, although was close to your heart and was held up as an example uh, of godly people, <laughs> yet we know that he was guilty of some serious missteps, some serious moral failure, and even the death of an innocent man. Yet you did not reject him. And neither will you reject us despite our failure, despite our faults, despite our unworthiness. You will still always love us. And you have proven without a shadow of a doubt uh, your commitment to us by the cross and by the empty tomb. Help us for all of these reasons, both the history of Scripture, my own personal history, and the history of my salvation as made clear by the cross to have confidence in this time of waiting, this time of despair, this time of confusion. Comfort me with the words of David. This I pray in his most gracious name. Amen.